Open your Bibles up this morning to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to pick up where we left off last time in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Specifically this morning, we're going to be looking at verse 8 in chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. This is a really, really significant statement that the Lord Jesus Christ makes here of our heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You know, when the New Testament opens, the nation of Israel is in desperate need. Desperate need. They are politically oppressed by the Romans. They are under that political oppression of this unbending Harsh Roman rule. A rule that will tolerate absolutely no dissent. They are economically oppressed by this same Roman system and its heavy taxation. Rome taxed its subjugated peoples very, very harshly in order to fight her foreign wars and to build her splendid cities. They were politically oppressed. They were economically oppressed. But most significantly, the nation of Israel was religiously oppressed. They were religiously oppressed by an expansive system of rules that had externalized their relationship with their God. It had turned it into a... a, a series of do's and don'ts that that no one could possibly accommodate. To be related to their God now was all about external behaviors. What you did, what you didn't do, where you went, where you didn't go. The matters of the heart were lost in this piling on of externalization. Jesus speaks of them. He he says the nation is like sheep without a shepherd. They They are lost. They are helpless. They are vulnerable. When Messiah came, when Messiah came, the the people expected that he would deal with the injustices of Rome. But before he would alleviate Israel's suffering from political and economic oppression, he must first deal with their religious suffering. He must first deal with their religious suffering. But the nation ultimately preferred religious ritual to reality. They rejected their Messiah. They turned away from the truth. They chose to side with their corrupt leadership and ultimately called for his crucifixion. But someday Messiah is returning. Amen? Messiah will return. And when he returns, he will take up Israel's cause again. He will take up her cause and and he will deal with her oppression. Beginning with her religious oppression and then the political and economic oppression. And he will usher in his kingdom. A thousand years reign of peace and prosperity when their relationship with their God will no longer be hindered. 
The prophet Ezekiel speaks of it this way. In Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 24. He says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so that you will be my people and I will be your God. There is a day coming, beloved. There is a day coming for Israel and her king. Now, lest we somehow think that we are better than they, that we might smugly say, well, if if I had been there, that's not what I would have done. I would not have lost track of God. I would not have externalized my relationship with God. It takes only a moment of self-reflection to realize how susceptible we are, isn't it, to the exact same trap. The externalization of our relationship to God. To focus on behaviors rather than the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's a snare. It's a snare that all of us easily fall into. It's tempting. It's tempting to fall into it as parents. When we deal with our children and, and we teach our children focusing on their externals, dealing with what they do without spending the time to recognize that it's really about their heart. That God is after their heart. We work so hard to clean them up on the outside. And we forget their heart in the process. It's tempting to fall for it in our own evaluation of what it means to be spiritually mature, right? We define it in terms of behaviors. That person's mature. They do this. They don't do that. The problem of defining things externally like this is behaviors can be faked. Behaviors can be faked. You can be socialized to the gospel. You learn what to say, what to do, when to stand up, when to sit down, right? Ritual. Prophet Isaiah wrote to the nation of Israel in Isaiah 29 and verse 13. He says, This people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service. But they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. They've got it all together on the outside, and they are very, very far away. So easy to fall for this trap. Our series here in the Beatitudes of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, and the Sermon on the Mount. 
we're building an eight-part description of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? We're looking at these Beatitudes here, beginning in verse 3. And we've been looking at them now for a couple of months. Each of these, we've noted, is a, is a description of, of what it means to be a disciple. It's a, it's a characteristic, it's an aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, in these Beatitudes that are given here, there's, a, there's an interesting symmetry. An interesting symmetry to, to how it's all put together. What I mean by that is the, the characteristics kind of work in pairs. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 3, we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit. And we, we noted that essentially what that's talking about is humility. Blessed are the humble. Look down at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. There's a symmetry here, and the the symmetry is that it's the humble who are the compassionate. It is the humble who are merciful. Verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we, we denoted that it means blessed are the repentant, essentially. It is mourning over their sin. Blessed are the repentant in verse 4 and The symmetry here, the correspondence is in verse 8. For they are pure in heart. Blessed are the repentant, for they are the pure. Verse 8. Verse 5. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the gentle. With the correspondence in verse 9. For they are peacemakers. You see how that works? It is the humble who are compassionate. It is the repentant who are pure. It is the gentle who are peacemakers. And this together forms this picture. And the connecting link between these attributes is in verse 6. It is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the hinge pin that ties this together. We're looking at verse 8 this morning. And as we have in all of these other Beatitudes, we're taking a three-pronged approach to it. Same structure week after week. It makes it easy for me. makes it easy for you, I hope. A three-pronged approach, right? So we understand what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Prongs of our approach are simple. There are three simple words. Designate, evaluate, cultivate, Right? Designate what is the characteristic that Jesus says is blessed. Evaluate how does this characteristic show itself in my life and and where am I lacking? Cultivate how do I get more? How do I grow in this characteristic as a disciple of Jesus Christ? As we have noted on more than one occasion, these Beatitudes are, are not requirements that merit God's approval. This is not about when I do this, then God looks on me with favor. That's not the point. What this is about is is that these characteristics, these beatitudes, are true of followers of Jesus Christ in principle. And they need to be cultivated in the process of discipleship. 
If you are a follower of Christ this morning, you are humble, you are compassionate, you are repentant and pure and gentle and a peacemaker, and you have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. That's what it means to follow Christ. It's not everything you want it to be. It's not everything it someday will be. But it's not what it once was. You are now a follower of Christ. So let's take a look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed to be a recipient of divine approval. To be a recipient of divine approval. To be favored by God. To in some sense be, be happy. That's what it means to be blessed. It's not about our subjective feelings. It's not how do I feel today. Do I, do I feel happy today? Do I feel blessed of God today? Well, I must be blessed of God. No, it doesn't matter how you feel. Good days, bad days. There so many things can change that. You are a follower of Christ today. You are blessed. God's approval and favor is upon you in Christ. You're blessed. And the reason you are, you are called here to, to this, this blessedness is, is because there is something in, in the future for you. You're, you're happy because there, there is something beyond this life for you. You get on the, the list. You're going to be part of the kingdom of, of God, verse 3. You're going to be comforted, verse 4. You're going to inherit the earth, verse 5. You'll be satisfied in your quest for righteousness, verse 6. You will receive mercy, verse 7. You will see God, verse 8, and you will be called sons of God, verse 9. Quite an inheritance has been stored up for you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So what does it mean? To be pure in heart. What does that mean? The word pure means to cleanse. Katharos is the the Greek word to cleanse or to, to be innocent. To be free from a corrupt desire, sin or guilt. Purity. Interestingly, the the word catharsis from this same word. Catharsis, right? In psychological terms, that, that means a cleansing of the mind and the emotions. Catharsis. So it's talking about being cleansed here, to be innocent, to be purified. It's used in terms of metallurgy to, to be free of impurity, to have the impurities removed, to be pure. Now, when Jesus speaks about being pure of heart, I think we could could say that he's talking about a single-mindedness, a single-mindedness, an undivided devotion to those things that please God. That's what it means to be pure of heart. Single-mindedness, undivided devotion for that which pleases God. And where is this undivided devotion to, to reside? He says it's in the heart, right? Blessed are the pure in heart. It's an internal thing. The heart. 
The scripture uses the word heart. It's speaking metaphorically here. It's talking about the inner person. The inner person. It gathers up the mind, the will, the desires, the affections. All gathered together. This is the heart. This is the real you. The body changes. It grows old and eventually it dies. But the, but the real you, the heart, this is where we are to be pure, he says. It's the control center, if you like, of all human activity. The heart. Now, God had given his ancient people a pretty detailed system of religious duties, hadn't he? I mean, you read through Exodus and Leviticus and, and into Numbers and Deuteronomy, and, and you go, wow, there's a lot there. There was, approach of God was not simple. It was, it was somewhat complicated. It was certainly well organized. By the time of the first century, by the time Jesus is speaking to the ancient people here, the Pharisees had added over 600 additional individual rules and regulations on top of that which God had given. This thing now was a, was a, was a ponderous pile of duties that no one could keep. Jesus speaks here about the heart. He's speaking about purity in the heart. He's speaking about that which has always been God's primary concern. God gave his ancient people a a rather detailed code, to be sure. But God has always been concerned about what's inside. That's his primary concern. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 29. These words are spoken by God right after the nation had received the Ten Commandments a second time, just prior to going into the land. Notice what God says. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and their sons forever. God is concerned about their heart. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 16, he God speaks to them and he says, so circumcise your heart, stiffen your neck no longer. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6, moreover the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. God gave the nation the institution of circumcision. He had given it originally to Abraham, right, as a sign of the covenant. So to be a Jew, to be a faithful Jew, one must be circumcised in their flesh. But God was never really concerned about the surgical procedure. That was merely an illustration of something far deeper than that. God was interested that they were cut away on the inside, in the heart. Corruption. Prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 17 and verse 9 says the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's out of the heart, right? It's out of the heart. David in Psalm 51 verses 6 and 10 in his great confession of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba or after Nathan 
comes to him and confronts him in his sin, and David is broken over his sin. He prays these words, Behold, God, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me wise. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. God, you want my heart. Why? Proverbs 4 and verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life, because it's out of the heart that behavior flows. It's about who we are on the inside. Jesus says exactly that. He says the the heart is the source of human behavioral ills. Matthew 15, go ahead, take a peek over there with me. Matthew 15, then beginning in verse 18. Jesus said, it's not about what you eat. Oh, you silly fools. It's the things that proceed out of the the mouth come from the heart, verse 18. And those defile the man, for out of the heart... Come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. <laughs> and yet how often when we, when we deal with sin, we try to deal with the externals only. It's like, it's like knocking the leaves off the tree and somehow thinking that's going to get rid of it. Even cutting it down is not enough. We have to go after the roots. We have to look at the heart. For most of us, we don't like that. That's when it gets uncomfortable. That's when it really starts to get personal. Go after the heart. My friends, it's the heart where the place of true love for God resides and fulfills his law. Chapter 22, Matthew 22, verse 37. Question asked in verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? I mean, boil it down for us. You're the Messiah. Take this whole elaborate Levitical worship ritual and boil it all down for us, please. Sure. He said to him, here it is. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. There. It's all boiled down to one. And it's not about the outside. It's about the inside. It's about the inside because it's from the inside that the outside springs. We can say it this way, the the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. The heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. God's interested in our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For they shall see God. Do you know? That is a stunning statement. You think about that for a minute. They shall see God. 
Ever since Adam's sin plunged himself and his posterity into ruination, that which God had originally intended and designed, and that is unhindered fellowship with him, right? They walked with God in the garden in the coolness of the day. That was how it was supposed to be. We were supposed to be able to have unhindered access and fellowship with God, to to see God. But it was lost. It was lost. And ever since that time, his people have intensely longed to recover that which is theirs. To see God. I mean, we can identify with Moses, can't we? Right? Moses says in Exodus 33, verse 18, Please show me your mercy. Or your glory, rather. Show me your glory. Let me see your glory. Of course, he says this right after dealing with the sin of the nation and the the golden calf, right? He's at the end of his wits, and he says, God, show me your glory. God answers him pretty directly. says, no man can see me and live. No mortal man can see me and live. No. You cannot see my glory. Look what Jesus says here, verse 8. He says there's a future day coming. There's a future day coming. They shall someday see God. See God. There is a, a promise to the people of God that, that someday we will enjoy the unhindered fellowship with our Creator. We will be in His immediate presence. <laughs> oh, how I long for that day. Oh, how I long for that day. Now, this is not a new concept. Jesus didn't just spring it on them here. All of these Beatitudes find their source and root in the Old Testament. This is not a new promise. It's a new way of of expressing an old and ancient promise. For example, Psalm 73, verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so we see that purity of heart thing going on. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, has not sworn deceitfully, who can come into the presence of God? Those are the pure heart. Purity of heart. Writer of the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone for and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Purity, the holiness You'll never see God without it. 
I think one of the greatest promises of all, coming in Revelation chapter 22 and verses 3 and 4, where John, under inspiration, writes these things about that time when our presence with God is no longer hindered by sin. And he says there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Beloved, there's a day coming. There is a day coming when you will see God. I hope you long for that day. I hope that day captures your imaginations, your affections. The pure in heart will see God. So where do we stand in all this? Time for a little evaluation, right? Time for a little bit of evaluation. Where do you stand? If you're a follower of Christ this morning, remember this. This is true of you in principle. The question becomes is, is it becoming true of you in practice? Now we need to say the source of our purity is the transforming grace of God that changes us. This is all about the work of God in us. It is is the gift of redemption. It is by virtue of our faith union with Jesus Christ that that purity now becomes ours. And it begins with what I call positional purity. Positional purity. That means that when you become united with the Son of God by faith, that you become positionally pure before God. That is, the purity of the Messiah himself becomes yours in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, right? He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. We become positionally pure. That's why I said it's, it's ours in principle. Beyond that, we are actually pure. Actually pure. It's, it's not merely a legal fiction. It's not merely that God just looks at Christ and, and sees his purity and doesn't see our sin and, and the whole thing's sort of a hoax, smoke and mirrors. No, there is an actual change that occurs in the moment of redemption. We become actually pure. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Not he becomes a new creature or, or is becoming a new creature. He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. There's been a change in your soul. Change in your soul. But there remains with us a responsibility to grow in practical purity. And that's what I want to evaluate together with you this morning is the growth in practical purity. We are positionally pure in Christ. We are actually pure because of our faith union in Christ. But there is a growing practical purity that has to be ours as we grow as disciples of Jesus Christ. The first two are entirely of God. This second one, this third one, has our involvement. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, right? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Let us cleanse ourselves. There is something we need to do. Practical purity. So let's take a peek at some self-evaluation questions. Self-evaluation questions. Number one. Is it the supreme object, the desire and ambition of your life to see God? That is just a really penetrating question to ask yourself. Where is your compass pointing? What is north in your life? Where is the direction that you're headed for? What is the greatest joy, the greatest object, the greatest desire, the greatest ambition of your life? Is it to see God? Is it to see God? 1 John 3.3 3. Everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If this is the supreme goal and direction of your life, then then John says that our desire to see him leads to practical purity. Practical purity. We live in a world of multicolored baubles. All kinds of neat junk. Right? What, What awed us Last year is so much yard sale junk this year. There's always a faster, sharper HD, network-connected, coffee-making, you know, credit card-swiping bobble. <laughs> and we've got to have it. We've got to have it. Or maybe it's personal success. Right? Those rungs on that corporate ladder. We've got to climb them. Maybe it's education. Master's degree. Double master's degree. Triple master's degree. Ph.D. And on and on it goes, right? It's the ambition of our life. It's the goal of our life. It's it's what drives us. Shouldn't be. Perfect children. I don't know why anybody would pursue that as a goal. Talk about a fool's gold, right? (laughs) The perfect little family. That's what drives me. Marriage relationship, the ideal marriage, that's what drives me. So many things, many of which are good and fine, but they become substitutes for the reality. The reality is is that you were created and then recreated in Christ Jesus to see God face to face. That has to consume you. Consume you. It's like this. It's like we are, we are standing in the outer court of the king's throne room. 
Any moment those doors could burst open and you'll be summoned in to an audience with the king. What are you doing to prepare yourself? I mean, if you had an audience with the, with the Queen of England, you'd get squared away, wouldn't you? I can see you now. You know, you guys, you'd be there in the mirror fixing your tie again and again and again. And, you know, the hair and ladies, you know, the whole thing. <laughs> right? Come on. You wouldn't be just, you know, sitting there playing games on your iPod. Oh, he wants me, she wants me now? Really? My turn? I mean, you'd be on, you'd be on edge waiting for your audience with the queen. Hey, listen, we're in the throne room. We are in the throne room waiting to be ushered into the presence of the king of glory. We need to be ready. We need to be ready. Coram Deo. We we are living before the face of God. We need to be ready. How about this? Are you taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ? You're taking every thought captive to the, to the obedience of Christ, or, or are you allowing your mind to go places that you know dishonor God? I mean, you could be sitting here this morning, mouthing the words of the songs, and at the same time, you're... Your mind, your heart is a million miles away. And it could be someplace you know it doesn't belong. Paul says we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Blessed are the pure in heart. There's a battle. You're part of it. It needs to be waged. How you doing? How you doing in the battle? Where's your goal? Where's your compass? Where's your north? What's giving you your direction in life? You ready to meet the king? You ready? Well, how do we cultivate this? How do, we, how do we grow in the likeness of Christ? How do, we, how do we grow as a disciple of Christ? I've got some ideas for you. Let me suggest a few things. The pursuit of purity begins with our recognition of weakness that motivates us to reach out for God's help. It all begins there. Listen, if you think you can do it yourself, you will never reach out for help. You're like the little kid, right, who says, me do, me do, me do. You don't do nothing, okay? I will tie your shoes. Sit down. It begins by recognizing our weakness. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? Answer, nobody. Nobody can say that. 
So it begins with just an honest appraisal of our weakness in this area and our, and our need to grow. And so that motivates us to reach out for God. And so secondly, that leads us to pray. Leads us to pray. Pray that God would grant to you what he requires of you. Pray that he would grant you what he requires. Purity of heart. I mean, there's no kidding around here in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they, and grammatically it's for they, and they only will see God. There's not two levels of disciples here. Some that are pure in heart and get like a, you know, an extra suite in heaven. And those that are not pure and just barely get in. Listen, only the pure in heart get in. It's an all or nothing proposition. Pray what God would grant you what he requires of you. That you would, you would, in practice, become what you are in position. Pure in heart. Pure in heart. You're going to get there in this life? You're going you're gonna to get all the way to the finish line? You're going to, at the end of your life, you're going to say, well, I made it. I'm pure in heart. What was, where are the rest of you? No. No, this is a lifetime pursuit. God will finish it off at the end when he takes you to be with himself. Either Christ returns and you, you go to him in the rapture, or he, or he takes you into his glory through death. At that moment in time, he will finish what he has begun. But we don't sit around on the sidelines saying, oh, God will take care of it. Live how I want. Think what I want. Do what I want. God will take care of it. No way. No way. Not a disciple of Jesus. This is the pursuit of passion of their heart. Listen, number three. Saturate yourself in the life-transforming scriptures. There is there's no way around this. You want to grow in purity of heart? You grow in purity of heart as you take in the Word of God. We say this over and over and over again because we need to hear it over and over and over again. God has given everything we need for life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. The true knowledge of Him comes only through the Word of God. 2 Peter 1.3 only through the Word of God. It is the Scriptures that cultivate purity of heart. The Spirit of God uses His Word to evaluate the inner person, right? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as this division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It searches right down deep. It shows us who we really are. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus purifies his church by the washing of water with the word. The washing of water with the word. Saturate yourself in the life-transforming scriptures. Think of it this way. The mind. It's a battleground, isn't it? 
thoughts, affections, pulling back and forth, tugging, noble thoughts towards God, and then boom, this thing comes out of apparently left field. It, it grabs us, it spins us. What do we do? Think of it this way. All that stuff is poison. Deadly poison. If that deadly poison is, is put in an eight-ounce glass of water, you have to drink it. You're going to die. That same level of poison, if it, if it could be diluted in a swimming pool of 50,000 gallons, its toxicity, its, its potency would be diluted. Isn't that right? All right, that's what the Word of God does. The Word of God, when we saturate our mind and our heart with the Word of God, it, it dilutes all of the crud in there. And the more we take in, the, the more it becomes diluted, the less potent it becomes, the less able it becomes to, to commandeer us. People come to me and they'll, they'll say, Pastor, I'm, I'm not doing well. I'm really struggling my thoughts, my behavior, whatever it is. I always ask them this question and I always know the answer before I ask the question. Tell me about your Bible reading. When's the last time you read it? Are you regular in your reading of your Bible? I already know the answer. What's the answer? They're not. They're not. Well, I read it once, a month ago. Great. And then you wonder why you're struggling. I mean, I know it's, it's, it's simple stuff. But it's a solution. Spirit of God uses the Word of God to transform the human heart. Saturate yourself in the Word of God. Here's another, number four. Number four. Listen less, speak more to your own heart. Listen less, speak more. Now, to other people, you need to listen more and speak less. Okay? So James says, right? Keep your mouth closed and listen. Or as my mother used to tell me, God gave you two ears and one mouth. There's a lesson in that, son. Okay? So when it comes to other people, listen more, speak less. When it comes to yourself, listen less to yourself, to your heart, and speak more to your heart. That is, speak truth to yourself, or as some like to say, preach the gospel to yourself. When the mind starts to, to, to spew out things contrary to the Word of God, then you need to rebuke it and speak truth back into your own heart. Speak less, or listen less, speak more to your own heart. Counsel yourself. Argue yourself back to reality. Say to your heart, oh, deceptive, wicked heart, you are lying to me at this moment. I will not find satisfaction for my soul in the pursuit of this activity. Oh, wretched heart, why do you lie to me? Stop it. My satisfaction is to be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. I am his child. I have been purchased by his blood. 
I am, I am on my way to see God face to face. And, oh foolish heart, I will not do this thing. I will not believe this lie. I will believe and do the truth. Number five, sharply rebuke ungodly thoughts the moment they arise. The moment it arises in your heart, rebuke it, say to yourself as loud as need be said and as often as need be said, no! No! I will not go there. I will not Gentlemen, you're struggling with your thought life? Start speaking to your heart. No! The minute the thought starts to come, say it again. If you need to, say it out loud. Yeah, I know. People think you're nuts. They'll stay away from you. Probably reduce the temptation. That's what it takes. It takes that kind of firm commitment. It takes that, that kind of self-counsel. Rebuke the ungodly thought. Do not entertain it. Do not allow it to gain a foothold in your mind. Do not, do not let it reside there. Don't go to bed on it and sleep on it. Re- rebuke it. Deal with it. Put it away. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All right, what do we do with all this? Here it is. Which one of these five are you going to focus on this year? Right, still January, it's time for resolutions, all that good stuff. I'm going to tap into that, you bet. Which of these five are are you going to focus on this year? Right here they are. We're going to... I'm going to review them with you again. Begin with a recognition of your weakness that motivates you to call out to God for help. Is that, what you're going, to, is that going to be your focus this year? Is that I'm going to really begin to think seriously about how weak I am in this area and, I'm, and call out to God? I'm going to pray. I'm combining one and two. I'm going to pray that, that God would grant me what he requires of me. Is that, what, is that your New Year's resolution, as it were? It's how you take this sermon and you, and you not just walk out and say, well, that was a lot of stuff. I'm under conviction, but don't worry. A good lunch and it'll be over. <laughs> right? Yeah. Give me a good lunch and I'll forget the whole thing. Don't forget it. What is it going to be? Put a, write it down. Put a, you know, whatever. Or is it, the, is it the Word of God for you this year? You have just struggled in the Word of God, but this is going to be your year by the grace of God. Hey, get on the bandwagon. Join us in the, in the Bible reading, through the Bible in a year. We're using a different reading program this year. If you don't like it, read the Bible anyway. <laughs> I mean, this plan has a, has a built-in catch-up day. Right? Six days with a seventh day, it says reflection. Okay? That means you can catch up on the reflection day or you can actually reflect on the week that you've just read. We're only in the middle of January. Don't go back. Get in with us right now, today, Sunday afternoon, January 15th. Jump in.
Make this the year. Make this the year. You start a pattern in your life that God will use mightily to transform you from the inside out. Read the Word of God. Or maybe this is the year that you're going to that you say, you know what? I'm going to listen less and speak more to myself this year. I'm going to listen less to the ungodly thinking, and I'm going to start speaking truth to myself. I'm tired of being bounced around. This is the year. I'm going to start talking truth to that rascal. I'm going to rebuke, sharply rebuke those thoughts. My friends, God can help. God desires to help. God will change you. He will change you if you will but pursue him. Let's pray. Our Father, what an amazing statement. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see you. O Lord, may 2012 be a year that is transformational in each of our lives. Old sin patterns, Father, that have really dragged us down. Ungodly ways of thinking and reacting to certain situations that seem to come in wave after wave and knock us off our pins. Oh Lord, our best desires and intentions to to be daily reading your word and communing with you in fellowship and, and we start out so well and then we fall by the wayside. Oh God, may this be the year. May this be the year that you would do something amazing in our lives. Father, we, we want to grow in holiness. We're not kidding around. This is, this is not a joke, oh God. This is the sincere desire of our hearts. May you grant what you require of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.